gain and vocalization is an area, and I mean the nuances and the subtleties and different uh, families have uh, slightly different tones. You know, it's pretty incredible. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. How can you tell the difference between a wolf and a coyote? What's a koi wolf? Do they live alone or in packs? And are those packs like wolves, or are they different? We asked for questions, and we got them. A few weeks back, I asked on social media what your questions would be for Leslie Sampson, founder and executive director at Coyote Watch Canada. You answered, and then you kept on answering. Between Defender Radio and Coyote Watch Canada's social media, we had two packed pages of questions to go over in this recent interview. And I gotta be honest, we didn't get to all the questions. This episode is already pretty long, but we may be able to use some of those questions to create blogs for our website, so stay tuned on that. And because this is such a long episode, you'll be able to find some time codes for specific topics in the show notes in the coming days. For now, let's dive right in with my good friend, Leslie Sampson of Coyote Watch Canada. To start, I want to talk about coyotes mating and coyotes uh, being protective of their den sites. Because right now, right, we're, we're at the end of May um coyote pups are coming out and we're hearing a lot of these things it's, it's messaging that you and i and other people in this field are used to hearing year after year after year and that is the coyotes are out they're going to protect their young be on the lookout um so let's start with what are coyotes actually doing this time of year so they are first and foremost everything in canid family is all about those wee pups this year's pups and sometimes that can mean one of the older siblings coming back from you know uh being on their own to help uh mom and dad raise this year's litter uh it doesn't mean they're going to stay around um they they do come back and each family is so different and so without generalizing it's just sometimes folks will say to us you know we always saw the same pair, and then this third one, um, we keep seeing this third one hanging around. And with all likelihood, uh, that's, that's one of the uh, yearlings mm-hmm. from last year, right? And so everything is about, um, you know, making sure that those pups are receiving not only the parental protection, but all of the nourishment and all of the teachings that go hand in hand for them to grow and mature and meet, meet those seasonal milestones that will truly, uh, you know, prepare them to be at one, one day on their own as a, you know, a coyote adult. It's, it's, it's very much the same as how we raise our children, just condensed and with more fallen fruits, vegetables, and mice, pretty much. Absolutely. And oftentimes we find when um, folks in a community understand uh, what those seasonal, those seasonal developmental stages are for uh, wild canids like fox, coyotes and wolves, they have a better understanding because if 
you know, for most of us, we have a family dog uh, in our home. And when you look at dog development in, in coyote world, though, those animals, when you think about it, they are really prepared if they needed to, to disperse in the fall time. So that's a very short window of development. And so oftentimes um, when they're now at the end of May, they will be uh, on their way uh, probably heading towards a rendezvous site or a safe zone. And that's an area that mom and dad uh, choose for those pups to essentially hang out in while mom and dad forage and hunt and they go back to that area and bringing those uh, food resources and other uh, could be play things like feathers and bones and golf balls and fishing lures depending on what's in the environment and so that then is that family has transitioned from the home den now to a rendezvous site. And so that den won't be used again. Uh, and if it's available and clean, uh, it won't be used again till next springtime by this family. And that is one of the, uh, probably the most um, confusing aspects of coyote milestones is that people think that they're living in the dens all year round. And, um, you know, one thing we do find now in urban scapes, um, there is an assumption by many folks that are, you know, in advocacy, first response, uh, wildlife um, businesses that are tasked with uh, wildlife proofing properties and humanely uh, moving out wildlife. Oftentimes, a coyote family might only have one den in, in an urban scape. So, we try to work with folks. Um, we Right now for Coyote Watch Canada, we're getting a 10, 10 to 1 fox calls. Jeez. So um, we're seeing uh, a, new, a different uh, dynamic with uh, fox in the community this year. It's always interesting. Oh, so I just got a beard hair in my mouth. Uh, Ew. So, yeah, I know. I'm keeping this in, by the way. Ew. Because uh, this is the gl- the glamour of podcasting <laughs> with a yeah. big beard. Yeah, to see what we really look like. I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, drinking cup. My beard's been growing out um, because we're not allowed to do anything, and that is making my my face sad. So it's crying hair. Um, <laughs> and I got what? No, and the problem. My mustache gets in my coffee. Then I sip my coffee, and I get Ew. hair. I know it's terrible. Uh, at least I can tell it's mine. So. <laughs> Yes, that's anyway. all, Jay. Uh, you can't blame JJ because that hair would be really fine and you'd probably swallow it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> and, back to coyotes. <laughs> right. For, uh, for the listeners, JJ is uh, Michael's beautiful four-legged family member yes. that he shares his homestead with. So, uh, mm-hmm. And many pictures of her on my Instagram. Uh, but anyway... The other part of the seasonality I wanted to talk about is we're, we're at the trail end of this now, but you and I ended up writing a, a relatively in-depth article with a bit of an investigative aspect to it. Because in recent years, we have both, and many other people have seen, variations on this meme. And it always tends to be in spring. Um, right. It can be early spring, it can be late spring, it can bleed in the summer, start up again in fall. But it shows a coyote biting the collar of a dog. And the dog looks terrified. Uh, it's a very harrowing image, and it's got information saying, like the one we have in this article I'm looking at, which I'll link in the show notes, 
is please be aware the next four to six weeks is mating season for coyotes. Do not let your dogs out alone. Coyotes, get your dog to chase him and somewhere in the distance pack weeks for your dog, which we know is false. Um, anyway, it's got other types of information. There's various forms of it. But you and I saw this and immediately both had the same thought that this isn't what's going on in this picture. Uh, and I think this is such an important lesson. Again, it is quite seasonal because this is the time of year this one comes around again. But do you want to talk a bit about what we did to sort of break down what was actually happening in this image and the story behind it? Yeah. So, I mean, in any kind of uh, outreach in community work, there's always going to be those individuals that, first of all, no matter what kind of scientific data and support and rigorous science is presented, it doesn't matter. But a photo speaks a thousand words and there's nothing better at getting people's fear and their emotions riled up than to see a photograph without any context. And so what had happened, um, we actually had uh, one of our uh, volunteers from from the United States actually uh, investigated that photo. And that's when you and I had that discussion and we said, look, this has to be exposed because this is actually a coyote that is in, in a trap that has been um, essentially attacked by three trap line hound dogs. And, you know, it's unfortunate um, that the majority of people that shared that photo with all the good t- intentions in the world, they actually didn't have the wherewithal to understand what was going on. When you actually uh, analyze the photograph, you can immediately see that that coyote is, in, is restrained yeah. just by the body, um, the positioning of the body. And so, um, you know, the series of photos that followed that particular one with the, the coyote, uh, the teeth on the collar, uh, the series of photos that followed uh, showed the coyotes, uh, the coyotes hind end and around the neck. You could see um, saliva, you could see hair up. So those dogs were actually attacking the coyote while in the trap. And people were devastated. I mean, yeah. that, that meme was shared uh, at one point. Um, a veterinarian clinic from the U.S. shared that, and it, it was circulated on social media close to a million times. So that demonstrates for those folks that really get drawn into a photograph how false that is and how misleading and how really it's actually betrayal. I don't believe that the folks that originally had shared it on this uh, veterinarian page understood what they were sharing, but that also then brings us to the point where we are now is that if you're going to share something, you better make sure of the origin what the context is, and also ask yourself, does this seem actually, what they're saying, does it really add up? And so the dialogue, the written uh, communication that followed that photo was that mating season, the males are aggressive, they're going to lure your dog, and all sorts of really, um, you know, for anybody that knows canine behavior and that has uh, observed them for years and years, and then if you look at the science behind those statements, it, it, it comes up short. But people don't realize that. And so the myth of luring and, of course, the aggression. No, um, with wild canids, it's defensive, protective, territorial. It's a reaction. It's a manifestation of what that, that 
coyote is going through at that time. And what people don't realize is that in coyote world, dogs are another predator. It might as well be another coyote because they have their set territory and any dog that's a threat that is uh, appearing to want to harm one of the uh, family members, especially during this time of year, uh, mom and dad are going to do their best to protect their babies like you and I would, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and one of the other things that's quite interesting about this um, is definitely the number of people who shared it thinking they were helping. Uh, I think that is so, so telling. And one of the reasons that you and I have these rambling, often unrecorded conversations about social media uh, yeah. Because when you then look at this stuff with that critical eye, whether it's a subject you're super familiar with or, you know, like for me, I just have the tools. So look at that and say something's not right. Google reverse image. <laughs> Start finding yeah. the pieces and connecting them. And what you we ended up coming across, I believe it was a Flickr, an old Flickr account where this photo series lived. Yeah. Um, and you could see. And, and again, it, most people, I'd say the vast majority of people simply had no idea that this photo was actually of a series that clearly documents a trapped coyote being harassed and attacked by at least three dogs. Yes. Um, and again, it's it's unfortunate because the way it's presented makes you want to share it. But, you know, as we said, that's one of the great times to ask another organization. If you see something like this and you're not sure, shoot it over to us. We're happy to have a look at it and give you our thoughts. And this is a process I know with the fur bears. I'm not too sure what Coyote Watch Canada's process is. But before I share anything, I follow the thread of logic. I follow the links. I check the citations um, Absolutely. when possible. I follow yeah. the money because yeah. there are people out there who are using this intentionally. Now, again, I'm going to underscore because I a hundred percent agree with what you said. The vast majority of people, including that one vet clinic had no idea that there was any maliciousness behind this. They were trying to be helpful and we thank them for that. It's just in this case, it's a very clear example of there's more going on than we can see. And with the instant gratification of social media, we, we don't do the work that maybe we used to do to determine whether or not it's real. Well, I mean, uh, we've all been targeted by uh, individuals that are just motivated by hate and, you know, um, trying to, trying to uh, you know, I don't know, they're, they're just unhappy with their lot in life and they will stop at nothing including you know putting photographs out and claiming that it is you or someone else in your organization knowing full well that it's not and you know we've had we've had that happen it happened last year and you know those instances need to be called out definitely documented because those individuals have a pattern of doing that and so, you know, to actually put a person's name on a photograph knowing full well it's not them, it becomes a legal issue, right? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, and the thing is, with that photo series, as you mentioned, it's not that the individual who had that account was misrepresenting what was happening. People just took what they wanted from that. Yes. You know, without... Um, really providing all of the facts. But then if they had have provided all the facts, uh, most people would have chosen not to share that particular photo of the coyote being, you know, grabbing the collar, right? Um, 
Okay, well, on that note, let's dive into our questions. So a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, um, we had put out to people, what are your questions about coyotes? And we got a ton of awesome responses on both Coyote Watch Canada and the Fur Bear social media, as well as a couple directly sent to me. So I'm just going to go through these. There's a couple that kind of are similar and all grouped together. Uh, and the one I wanted to start with is, what is the role of a coyote in their habitat? Because this is something that I think doesn't always get fully understood uh, because especially here in Ontario um, coyotes are perceived as new, which they're not. Um, right. But there's this perception that they're new because we didn't see them very often for a long time. Uh, so let's talk about what the role of a coyote in their habitat is, whether that habitat is, you know, a ravine in York region, uh, a field in Niagara, a, you know, outside Calgary or in uh, a park in Vancouver? Like, what what do they do for their habitat and the ecosystem? Well, I, I think, you know, again, I'm glad that you brought up uh, region because their role might look a little different in a desert scape or along a shore shoreline, um, ravine systems. I mean, they're moving through their home range. There is that transient coyote that, Will, will have a different um, impact on an ecosystem, but they're moving around quite a bit. They don't have a territory of their own, so uh, they really need to work a little bit harder at, you know, redefining where their food sources are. But, you know, as uh, they're really what we call the true ecothermometer in locations and habitats because if things are functioning really well and healthy, you'll have that resident family that is thriving there. If human food is being introduced, um, you know, there's artificial food sources available, then that is going to also influence, you know, uh, family survival. And so if the landscape is really conducive to having, you know, two pups surviving and, and remaining in that territory during the next year, but then somebody is leaving piles of dead stock or dead deers out from hunting, that could influence the survival. Um, but their main source of diet is going to be what is local. So it could be anything from snails <laughs> to nuts to uh, insects, definitely carrion. You know, they clean up um, you know, animals that have died, and oftentimes you'll see a coyote running down the street. We, you can't really identify whether it actually killed the animal or not because they will grab roadkill and mm -hmm. take that back to their family or eat it for themselves. And so they really do help keep those species that are uh, hosts for ticks down, the voles and the mice, any of those small mammals they consume a lot. I mean, we were observing one, the head of the family, the female, uh, this was a location we were researching in the beginning of uh, 2000. That this was under another project, not Coyote Watch Canada. But uh, she, within uh, an hour period, had captured eight small voles. Wow. And, I mean, that's incredible in one hour. That's, you that's know, and, better than, like, a professional pest company oh. could do. Oh yeah, and I mean, you know, they can they move they move animals through a system too, right? Mm -hmm. But if you've got somebody that sets up a trail cam and puts food out, 
at that trail cam site, every animal species in that area, including cats and dogs, if they're free roaming, are going to check that spot out. And if that location consistently has a false food source there, that's going to change coyote behavior. And that's what we don't want. We don't want coyotes hanging around in a backyard. We don't want coyotes, you know, going to a location because somebody thinks that they need to eat or they feed, you know, they're feeding coyotes because they think it'll keep them from, uh, you know, killing their cat, which should be in a catio or indoors anyway. And so they are very good. They're creative and natural foragers and hunters. And we just need to make sure that we don't interfere with their ability to navigate throughout their territory and decide whether it's viable or not for them to stay. Well, and talking about um, what they eat, I think it's really interesting because you and I both saw reference uh, to an urban study in progress that claimed something like 22% of an urban coyote's diet is made up of cat. And what got me right off the top was this person, uh, this researcher indicated in their language that coyotes kill and eat cats and it makes up 20% of their diet. But right. that's a, a massive inference from the data. The data is that they consume matter from cats. Right. And when you start, and again, I, I can look out my window, uh, well, my tiny little basement window, uh, any given day of the week living here in an urban center and see a cat outside. And once a week, I see a dead cat outside. Yeah. Um, we've got outdoor and feral cats here, and they are most often... I remember working for the newspaper one time. Year, this is going back many years. Uh, I wrote about the... I think it was in the first quarter of the year. Something like 200 cats were found on the side of the road by local animal control. Yeah. Um, and they said, we can't say that these were all killed by cars, and we can't say that ones that weren't right on the road and were 10 meters away weren't killed by cars, but it, it gives an indication uh, of the volume of that issue, and that was in a suburb, so you can imagine in a city, there's likely even more. Um, so when we hear this, we also then need to interpret the data for what it's actually saying. The data is saying that in this case, this specific data set is indicating that a coyote's diet, on average, based on several in one area, can In one be, area, yeah. that's key. The location, the time of year, because if you did that same scat analysis a year or two years later, that would be the marker on whether that actually is a realistic assumption based on the data of scat analysis. So yeah. it's really, really important because most of the scat analysis is not identifying roadkill. Yes. They're, they're going, or they say um, undefined domestic animal. You know, uh, Dr. Shelley Alexander's uh, scat analysis out of Calgary was uh, amazing because there was only, uh, I believe, six, six scats I think six or eight scat um, analyses that demonstrated any kind of domestic animal and they couldn't really identify. And so of that, though, how much was roadkill? And in an area, the, I think there's well, the one uh, research 
uh, paper you're referencing, I do believe, is the L.A. paper. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was, it was Los Angeles, to, just for everyone to have context. Reasons. It's a big city. Well, and how many, how many of them met their demise because of human interference, right? Oh, exactly, like we, exactly. We don't know. Yeah. Um, and so, but but for for uh, somebody, a layperson, to look at the research and not really understand how that's relevant and how do we look at it and use rigorous scrutiny and what does the data actually mean? It can be, you know, it can be uh, overwhelming. Oh yeah. And that's the thing is I'm not even looking at the data itself. I'm looking at how the data was presented uh, because it's, it's assuming intent. Um, and this is something of side note that's actually really big with anxiety disorders is assuming what other people are thinking. Um, yeah. And maybe that's one of the reasons I think about that too much um, is with my anxiety disorder and all of the, the therapy over the years. Um, but anyway, let's move away from nerdy science and talk more about fun things such as do coyotes really eat roadrunners, Leslie? <laughs> well, I know there's something circulating on social media right now and you know, it's, it's somewhat of, uh, a humor driver for some folks and others it's oh my gosh you know see to see any animal but when it comes to coyotes that are carrying anything that it resembles a once living animal people just uh, yeah. find that hard to hard to get their head around but they're eating they have to eat so um you know what i'm sure if there's a dead road runner there maybe they're going to take that animal I have no backgrounder on that photograph that's circulating on social media, so really I can't even talk to it. Mm-hmm. But obviously that coyote had a roadrunner in his or her mouth. So you know. we can say they can eat roadrunners. However, we are uncertain about the technology used to catch said roadrunners. Well, and what's the context, right? Yes. I mean, and really, are we okay? And, and, but I guess my next question would be, and... <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it Where, was it was a bit of a fun one. Right, right. Yeah, because, I mean, based on good old Wiley, uh, yeah. you know, that cartoon still haunts us till this day, doesn't yep, it? Yep. Uh, and I will admit I have called Coyotes Wiley as a journalist. Oh. I will own that. It was before I met you. Leave me alone. Anyway, <laughs> um, one of the ones, and this is a themed kind of question. I'm going to rephrase because it came in a couple of different ways. Talking about coyote units coyote packs coyote families there was a couple of questions um you know do coyotes live in packs like wolves are they solitary or do they live in small packs some per- one person said they've heard stories of more than one coyote but they only ever see one at a time and there's there was a couple of different kind of questions around that so what is that family dynamic what's the pack how do we talk about that specific to coyotes so you know, depending on uh, where the research is coming from and the language being used, that now really it's more common to refer uh, to coyote uh, family dynamics as a really essentially bonded unit. So to refer to them, unfortunately the word pack, um, many folks will hear that and think that this is a you know, a, a group of unrelated coyotes that have packed up. And that's just not canid behavior. 
So it's going to be one family. And, I mean, uh, Dr. Stan Gert did just absolutely fantastic two-decade research on um, families and how they use the landscape. And so That was outside of Chicago, right? Yes, yeah, just amazing data, uh, but it does demonstrate that coyotes are very territorial in the sense that they really do respect the neighboring coyotes, whether they're related or not, and some coyote families... And you can, you know, look up, uh, you know, Dr. Gert's recent uh, presentation that he did in Ottawa, and they will often give up sections of their territory to their offspring. And so you've got related family members sharing a particular landscape. But the transient coyotes that are working around those areas, um, they really don't have a home range, and so they're utilizing those fringe territories and keeping out of the way of that home range uh, pair. And so, you know, most folks see one coyote, uh, but that doesn't mean there's not a family there, and sometimes they might see more, especially come early fall. They're going to see those sub-adults, those juveniles that are, you know, their growth spurt in the, the last few months. They're going to look in similar size, but still quite you know small compared to their adult parents and so you know we we look at them as family uh, the same way that um you know wolves have their families um and on that note we had a great one uh it's a twofer how to tell coyotes wolves apart and how do coyote tracks differ from dogs and wolves uh which are two kind of separate ones and i think we've got a real opportunity to talk about the algonquin wolf here too Yes, so, you know, oftentimes you have to look at more than just the track. And, you know, we often are doing consultation on tracks, and, you know, they don't realize what they need to do while in the field to really have a a valuable sample set. You've got to have, you know, get at least three to six or eight tracks that you can see. There is opportunity to look at one track, and you can see with the coyotes there are two nails their front paws, the nails come a little bit together, and they're, they don't spread very far apart because they are very light, um, but it's the pattern in which they move. So you're looking at the track placement, and um, they're direct. You know, when you look at wildlife, they really do use the land in a, a linear fashion because they're conserving energy. Domestic dogs are full of vim and vigor, and, you know, they're running all over the place. They're not conserving energy. And so um, oftentimes it's looking at how they're leaving their, their trail. That's a good indication. But in the landscape where you would have Algonquin wolves and eastern coyotes, you have to be careful because a small wolf is going to have a track similar to the coyote. So I think, you know, you have to look at the sample samples mm. provide well also we can say western coyotes are significantly smaller than an eastern wolf will be whereas in the east the distinction between wolves and coyotes gets harder and harder particularly with the uh genetically unique algonquin wolf mm. absolutely and i mean you know visually uh, when you look at an eastern coyote, especially if there's, um, you know, that that 
bat crossing between Algonquin wolf and eastern coyote families, which isn't really happening much anymore. The eastern coyote populations are very stable. The Algonquin wolf, they are under threat, and so they are staying within their own genetic pool, so to speak. But there are areas up north of Algonquin where you have that the Algonquin wolf as a conduit for genetics between the gray wolf and the eastern coyote. And so uh, a lot of times without actually doing um, the DNA sampling, and that could be hair or scat, you, you know, it's pretty difficult. If you look at a gray wolf and you look at an Algonquin wolf, you absolutely can see that there is quite a difference. But if you're looking at a young Algonquin wolf and an eastern coyote, it, it can be pretty tough. You can't, you can't tell the difference without genetic testing. And that leads into the entire conversation about the protection of the Algonquin wolf in the sectors up there, which I don't know if you and I talked about that in an episode. I certainly talked with Hannah Barron from Earthroots about the Algonquin wolf. I know that. Um, so you can look in the back catalog for that interview to learn more about them. Um, and yeah, so Wolves Ontario and Earthroots yeah. has done extensive work, um, Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry, uh, just amazing research on the Algonquin wolf, the eastern coyote. And so all of that research and the studies that are currently underway are available. But, you know, if you head over to that Wolves Ontario website, which is a sister of Earthroots, there's great information there. And, and actually, Hannah Barron, who is also our, our, one of our scientific advisors, she's the, the wolf biologist that was doing the genetic um, the sampling the field sampling uh, for the Ministry of Natural Resources it, with uh, the hopes that they could identify different territories for the Algonquin wolf. Um, and on that note, we had a question, and we'll try and keep this one somewhat tight in terms of the answer, because we've talked about this before, and we do have some content online for those who want to learn more, and I know you also have content about this. The question was, when a coyote mates with a gray wolf, do their pups become coy wolves? And this is a, I think we've probably spent an entire episode talking about coy wolves. So again, check out the bat catalog. Uh, but let's give this one just a quick, what, yeah, what is so, a coy wolf, I guess, maybe is the best way to start it. So, yeah, the coy wolf, the term, you know, it's it's not used accurately. And when people are using the term coy wolf, they're they're thinking that an animal's half wolf, half coyote. Well, if you if we're getting going to go down that road, then all of our dogs... We'll, we'll call them wolf dogs because they've got, you know, if you go back far enough, they have ancient, you know, wolf DNA in there somewhere. That's the origin of our domestic dogs through that wolf lineage. But, um, you know, eastern coyotes are not, they're not actively mating with the gray wolf. The conduit for that genetic gene pool would be the Algonquin wolf, which has no problem doing that. But the genetics behind, you know, looking at eastern coyotes actively mating with uh, gray wolves is just, um, you know, there's that that whole genetic conversation is interesting and it's worth looking into. But uh, John Benson has done some great work with that. But I think people need to be really cognizant. We have eastern coyotes here, which some folks want to call them coy wolves, but that's I guess fine, but they're not half wolf, they're not half coyote, 
and it's the western coyote and the Algonquin wolf that really is, you know, the western coyote. And there's some, you know, old dog DNA in there too, but, you know, again, where and how that dog DNA was introduced is uh, interesting. And I think when the science, I mean, if you look back 20 years ago, uh, the science wasn't where it is today. And so we really didn't know that the eastern coyote was carrying this amazing uh, genetic canid soup from the Algonquin wolf. And the, the Algonquin wolf used to be called the eastern wolf. And then that changed um, I, about, I think, three years ago. Yeah. The Ministry of Natural Resources uh, went, went to uh, the Algonquin wolf as the official name for this species. Which caused controversy, it should be noted. It was, again, yeah. from my mild outsider perspective, the argument over what they should be called is kind of, it's both soap opera-ish on one hand and then scientifically really interesting on the other because there are both those camps involved in naming a species. Um, uh, moving forward, there's, I'm trying to think of how to sort of put all of these together. Um, I want to talk about farmers and agriculture. So this got asked a couple of different ways. One of them was someone saying, I've lived in the country on farms with livestock, dogs, etc., my whole life and never had an issue with coyotes. And I often saw them. Now I don't see them, but other people are constantly complaining. Um, so sort of a, why do I not see them anymore, but other people are complaining as well as the question of how can farmers and agriculture have a mutually beneficial relationship with um, coyotes, which I think is a great sort of spread across those two questions. Well, I mean, that's a that's probably a whole entire other show. Which I um, think we've done, so look in the back catalog to learn yeah. more about that, too. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, when we contributed to uh, wolf awareness, uh, Sadie Parr, who is another wolf biologist who's done extensive work in B.C., uh, that rancher's tool guide in that in that document, it has just laid out wonderfully, and some of the information is based on other programs that have proved successful. Um, you know that have incorporated some pretty amazing techniques to keep uh, you know livestock safe and also celebrate and live in harmony with the native carnivores. So. With that, if you look at a particular farmscape, the, some of the things that were highlighted by the folks that we interviewed for our contribution for that uh, rancher's uh, toolkit, the rancher's guide, a uh, couple of things that stood out. First of all, they said that they did not remove uh, local food sources. So any of the smaller mammals, they were not actively killing those. They used uh, multi-animal multi grazing together. Um, they kept some natural areas. They also um, said, you know what, they liked having their local coyote family there. So they knew the family. They were not actively removing, lethally removing them. And uh, one of their number one things was the issue of domestic dogs especially in uh, rural locations, that they had a huge impact on, uh, you know, their, their livestock. 
And so I think there's so much information out there, and each situation is unique and different. Livestock guard dogs play an important role. Uh, folks utilize donkeys, but the the number one thing is that you're not encouraging, you know, your dead stock to be left in the land. And so the the farms and ranches that were successful and did not have issues with, uh, you know, coyotes in particular, they were not leaving dead stock. They didn't allow people to use their dead stock as bait piles to, you know, shoot coyotes over. And so I think that's really telling, but I, there's so much information in those, uh, you know, generational family farms and ranches. And I think we really need to uh, be willing to listen and um, engage and appreciate the hard work that they do and how they live truly in harmony with the land. And, I mean, it's amazing. Some of the, you know, their strategies are just uh, wonderful. You know, whether it's outbuildings, some, some different farmers use uh, each of their, their cattle has a number. They know exactly when, you know, they'll be giving birth. They're put into the birthing stalls and just a lot of really great strategies. The other side of that is that, of course, in Ontario, we do have the um, compensation program. But again, I really don't—we don't have the time to get into that. But yeah, that's 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 uh, an entire issue with a historic yeah. footnote to it as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, setting up trail cams in areas where there might be an elevation in predation or situations that you know the farming family can't quite put their finger on, uh, that can really uh, disclose a lot of what might be happening in the landscape. And it's, it's pretty, pretty telling and interesting when the trail cams go up, what you see is actually happening. It's, it's, uh, it's not often what you think it is. Yeah. And that's uh, a quick anecdote. I had a, I got the opportunity to look at the footage from a trail cam uh, up north and looking at the visitors, it was just fun to look at. But one of the things, and Leslie and I were talking about this before uh, before this call, um, it, it, I saw you know raccoons, and I saw a fox, and I saw squirrels, but I also saw four different roaming dogs. One of them was JJ, to be fair, uh, because we were there. But uh, the other three, you know, I knew one of them is known to people in the area. The other two, no one knew who those dogs were. They were just there. Uh, and this is not a region where, you know, you've got a lot of people nearby. Those dogs had to come from somewhere. And there's a lot of reasons those dogs could be there. Uh, but again, I I don't think, and I would personally absolutely love to see a study done with trail cams on agricultural property, comparing the number of dogs to the number of other wild canids that come through. Um, but that's a, another conversation. I think this leads into one of the last two or three questions I have. And this is a great big one. This is my question because I always want to ask it uh, <laughs> based on what you and I hear from people and what is often in the news. Uh, if getting rid of coyotes in one way or another, and everybody has their own version of what that means. Some it's relocate them all to Algonquin. Some it's kill them. Some it's, you know, trap them and 
ask them not to, and there's always different opinions on that. But if getting rid of or killing coyotes is the solution, why hasn't it worked? And I'm going to add a footnote to this question that the U.S. government has systematically been trying to get rid of coyotes in the West for about 200 years. Yeah. Like with biological warfare, they've been trying to get rid of coyotes in the West. Millions of dollars. And now we have arguably more coyotes. Right. So I think probably describing population dynamics is a good place to start because as soon as you remove the resident family, that land becomes vacant. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, other coyotes will eventually find their way there. And so, you know, we, we will often, you know, have that discussion with uh, property owners, especially in rural areas. You know your canid family, work with what you have, make sure there's no attractants there. And if you do have livestock, you know, keep, keep in mind that, uh, you know, any of those animals are, could become a food source, especially if you're looking at, you know, geese or uh, hens and, you know, could be food source for birds of prey, eagles, hawks, uh, owls, and also mink and, you know, fisher, depending on the location. But, um, you know, I think, I think we have to really look at it, it, it hasn't worked. Why would we repeat something that isn't working? And, you know, you really don't know who's moving in. So you lethally remove the resident family, and you could have a coyote show up tomorrow, or it might not be for a year. You know, each, each uh, location and landscape is so different, but especially around dispersal times, which isn't necessarily always in the fall, um, that used to be the old way of looking at the science, but we know now that some family members, the young ones stay with mom and dad for a year or two, or they disperse late, late fall or early spring. You know, it's not something that we can generalize anymore. And so, you know, I think that killing, if there's people out there that just want to be killing something, then they're guaranteed to be able to keep up that kind of activity. Mm -hmm. If you're killing coyotes because you're trying to get rid of them, um, I think it's a a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, and that's certainly what we've seen. Again, I I think ultimately, anytime I see this, my question is, um, how's that working out? Because I don't know of a single situation where people have effectively gotten rid of coyotes for the long term. Well, no. And, I mean, you will have the folks that think that every coyote should be killed. Yeah. And they're entitled to their opinion. It's not based on science or fact. But it's, it's a feel-good solution. Or, you know, there is, a, there is that person out there that just wants to be able to kill coyotes. That's a completely different conversation. Uh, but, you know, if you're looking at solving an issue, the first thing to do is get those trail cams up or get folks to do that, uh, that site visit, that investigation to see what is actually going on. And, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, there's issues of people trespassing and shooting and, 
you know, livestock being shot at and, uh, you know, coyotes are really a benefit for farming and ranching families. Yep. If they're doing uh, all the great strategies and, you know, practicing good husbandry, there's a pretty, pretty amazing relationship that can be uh, forged between the wildlife there. And, you know, oftentimes we've had folks say to us, you know what, yeah, they keep – they're keeping the groundhogs down and, you know, they're getting rid of those uh, rodents. You know, we've got, especially with uh, vineyards, the rabbits will, you know, chew on the, the bottom part of the vines. And if you've got, you know, natural predators in the landscape, it's really helpful for those individuals that are doing that as a business. Um, yeah, and I think something I just a fun anecdote to include in this. When you're talking about the investigations, the importance of going and looking uh, with a bit of a trained eye. So for the audience, you may not know, Leslie and I met originally when I was a journalist in the suburbs and I went with her on a little investigation around where some conflict had been happening, uh, which she likes to joke about because I was wearing dress shoes and a trench coat, but I did keep up. You did. <laughs> I did keep up. Uh, and I think the other thing that was very revealing of that to me was we saw so much crap. It was oh. remarkable. Blue bins that had just like, uh, it's like a three-year-old child touched everything, then touched the blue bin. That's what it looked like. It was sticky and it had bits of stuff. And that was every third house had one like that. There were houses yeah. that had built gates into their backyard illegally leading into a ravine to dump garbage. Like right. pretty much, and then we I, we ended up finding out someone in the area was actually directly feeding the coyote too later. Um, but like when you start asking those questions and stop thinking, well, my neighbors wouldn't do this or I couldn't do that, and go just look. Sometimes it's surprising what you see and recognize as problems that you just simply wouldn't have thought were possible. Uh, well, like the area we were in, we're half million dollar homes. Absolutely, and I think you know the the. The number one thrust for an investigation is to gather the evidence and facts. Mm -hmm. And so you don't go in there with a preconceived idea about what you're going to see or find or not find. You're basing it on evidence and fact. And some folks don't necessarily want that because maybe it's going to reveal things that have been going on in a particular location that has encouraged coyotes to hang around. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, for a residential area that has uh, maybe an increase or a trend of increase in sightings of a, of coyote, uh, a coyote coming to a backyard, it's really helpful for that, those residents to understand, wait a second here, I had no idea. You know, people love the bird feeder, and yep. we don't get into that. Uh, in bear country, your bird feeder better come down because yep. bears have come out of the you know, hibernation, and uh, it's just common sense to remove those attractants. There's plenty of natural foods around, um, but the bird feeder becomes the magnet because everything falls to the ground, and some folks have six, eight, ten bird feeders, and that is really a buffet for every animal species. And when we go into um, urban locations, we it's pretty telling because the, the wildlife indicates where where things are happening where the hot spots are because you'll see those hawks sitting on the weather vanes uh, some of them actually put nests 
near bird feeder locations, so it's easy pickings for the smaller birds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, if we can empower uh, residents to understand how they can change the dynamics between themselves and the wildlife, it, it's really worked very well. And there's so many communities that are doing great initiatives, uh, you know, with their community members and the wildlife, in particular coyotes. Well, and again, I can say we deal with a lot of bears uh, in British Columbia uh, as an organization. It is a topic that comes back year after year after year for us. And feeding directly and indirectly is the vast majority of the time the problem. And the same has been true with my experience with coyotes. Uh, when we talk about beaver conflict, it's the it's still resources, right? You, yeah. you make you make beaver habitat, beavers are going to show up. Uh, yeah. In an urban center, you talk about why are there so many seagulls? Because you keep leaving food in shopping malls. Yeah, like yeah. it's 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 that simple. Uh, but that leads into the final two. I want to go on. Uh, one, this came from my very good friend Eli, and he asked three great questions in succession, and I want to ask all of them because I think they're great. Okay. Um, I'll see what I can do. I, I need exact answers. Uh, oh, okay. You will be checked after. So first, do they have a home base once pups are up and about? So talking about the den location, uh, do they all stay together in one spot? Do they start to disperse? How does that work? So are we talking, you know, during the summer months or fall or what, what I think time of year? Generally, once the pups are, you know... Pups of the year, right? So they're up, they're moving around, they're starting to play and hunt. Uh, you're going to see those yearlings out with the the alpha pair uh, or the mated pair. Do they stick to a home base or do they start living in multiple den sites? No. Once they're weaned and they go, they're moved by the mom and dad. Sometimes those moves, by the way, are premature. So certain scenarios, if a den is disturbed, or there's construction that starts, or maybe somebody has their lawn cut. You know, a lot of times uh, homeowners won't even realize that there is a den at the way, way at the back of their property. So if mom and dad feel the pups are in danger, they will move them. And oftentimes it ends up being a location that's not optimal. It could be a culvert. It could be in a window well. Uh, folks that aren't home, it, you know, they have a... a Place in Florida, um, especially during COVID, you, you, there's a real interesting uh, trend that we're seeing in terms of uh, den selection that had never been used before um, or chosen before. So once they've been weaned and they're at that rendezvous site or that safe zone, they start following mom and dad around after. You know, they, that again, it's a really tight developmental stage for young coyote pups. And so once they're, they're not going back into the den, first of all, they're too big. They might go back to that location as a security, which we have observed in uh, different family locations. But, um, you know, they're not going to be using that den, maybe next spring perhaps, as, you know, as long as infrastructure and, uh, isn't occurring there. But uh, so they're going to stay in their home range which is defined and other coyotes you know that's why mom and dad are constantly vocalizing and the pups learn how to vocalize they're defending and sending out that that amazing vocal uh warning that this 
land is taken, and so they stay within that. But once they are dispersing, then they have to navigate through a completely different world. And that dispersal, as I mentioned uh, earlier on in our discussion, you know, every family is different. Some, some of the family members might stay together. Um, so, you know, and we don't know enough about their behavior, and it's so difficult because, again, it's resource-based, it's, uh, you know, infrastructure, uh, human activity, all of those things are going to impact how a family utilizes their home range and who in that family is going to remain with mom and dad or maybe they're going to be given a section of the old territory which they can now call their own. And again, I, I just urge um, listeners to go to Dr. Stan Gertz's research because it is just a work of art. Mm-hmm. When you look at uh, the patterns, the land use, and everything is color-coded, and you see how respectful um, the different coyote families are of their neighboring territories. Yeah. Yeah, he used a uh, radio collar telemetry for that, I think, didn't he? Or is he GPS? Okay. Um and, you know, I, there's, a, there's a bunch more questions. We got so many questions, and I am so thankful to everyone because uh, it was wonderful I to need see. To thank you, too, because we had so many amazing questions on Coyote Watch Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and some folks, uh, you know, DM them. Some of them put, uh, I thought, and, you know, anytime we can get our supporters and um, animal advocates to express uh, a concern or a question or some, a curiosity I think it's just amazing, and there's so many uh, engaged, compassionate folks out there. And I know from uh, Fur Bears into our organization, we just have an amazing circle of people that are doing great work from, you know, scientists to artists to teachers to, you know, just incredibly exciting individuals that contribute to um, bringing coexistence to the forefront. Yeah. And it's actually, um, I've met some great artists through Coyote Watch Canada events like, uh, Jas Winder Singh down in Niagara, who does some wonderful stuff and, uh, always does great coyote, uh, paintings that are quite enjoyable. So, uh, if people want to look them up online, uh, you'll see some fun stuff. Uh, and the final question we're going to get to, because I think we can have a bit of poetry with this as well as fact. What do all coyote sounds mean? What are they saying? And I, I love looking at conversations about this and all of the different interpretations of what those songs mean. So what, in general, what are coyotes saying when they're singing? Well, I mean, if, if we go just to kind of the Cole's notes, approach to it you know unless you're actually familiar with and and engaging observing or researching a particular family um the tone and the the style in which they're vocalizing can tell a lot you know the barking is a warning a distress long howling you know we we have documentation of you know a, a coyote that that is in a trap that is calling for the mate or a mate calling for their mate that is in rehabilitation, you know, having surgery because of a snare around his neck. 
and the family calls and calls on a nightly basis hoping that that partner will answer back and so but you know any time that coyotes are vocalizing not only is that a bonding opportunity between family members it's also uh helping those transient coyotes to understand that yes this is this is not vacant land it's taken but also um it's for location you know identifying uh where a family member is and um also you know celebration oftentimes you especially uh during uh the mating season their vocalization some some families are very vocal and other times I they're think not. I have those ones living next door to me, but they're not coyotes. Yeah. But you know, and, and in the in the beginning of the work, I used to be, oh my gosh, something's happened. I haven't heard them vocalize, and you know, you you get concerned and think, holy Hannah, you know, have they moved on, or were they they hit by a car, were they killed? And then all of a sudden, the the saxophony starts and. I think what folks need to understand, and some great research has been done in terms of uh, actually concluding how many are vocalizing. And so it was uh, two out of three times that, you know, they, they misunderstood and they elevated the number of actual coyotes vocalizing, and we use that as part of our uh, public presentations. But mm-hmm. so discerning for folks when they're hearing that in the middle of the night and it sounds like it's really close and i mean that vocalization can travel over a mile especially in good weather and so um also you know the myth that surrounds that too that they're vocalizing when they've killed something it's so it's it's such a when when you really look at it it's a, a silly myth but it is a myth that has been ingrained in our generation and it's shared it's repeated over and over again as fact. I mean, it'd be like us singing opera, right? It's just yep. ridiculous. They're not going to advertise it, that they're killing something. They're busy doing their work. And uh, I think, you know, for, for folks, though, that don't understand that vocalization, they don't have cell phones. The, that's their GPS. Mm-hmm. Canid vocalization is an area. And, I mean, the nuances and the subtleties and the tones, I mean, different uh, families have uh, slightly different tones. And, I mean, you know, it's pretty incredible. In the beginning, the early stages when we were doing the field work, um, you know, doing the the calls and vocalizing to see if they would respond back, we stopped doing that so long ago because it's just for ethical reasons, right? We don't, we weren't, you know, looking to change their behavior and if a coyote family's way over you know two kilometers away and they're hearing something and they got to use that energy to come back and see what the heck it is it's not really ethical uh but you know and we can sound very much like another uh you know another predator so you know that's one of the things you learn we change what how we do do the field work and research To get in touch with Coyote Watch Canada or learn more about them, visit their website at coyotewatchcanada.com or visit them on social media. I want to thank Leslie for spending so much time on this interview with me and for just right now finding out she's going to help me write a few articles to answer more of your questions next week. We both want to thank all of you for your great questions as well for tuning in and listening to this episode. Please do share it with friends and family. 
The more people know about coyotes, the less they fear them, and the more we can really coexist and flourish. Remember to follow me on social media for updates on episodes, interviews, adorable photos of JJ the Hamilton Hound, and more. I'm at Defender Radio on Twitter and Facebook, and at Howie Michael on Instagram. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. <laughs>